The thought that I want to bring before you this evening is obvious, isn't it? And I'm falling back on the use of this chart to help me out. We speak about this as a foundation day meeting. Foundation. But you see, nearly every one of the words we use are relative. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, there could be no husband if there was no such thing... Oh, I mustn't say that, must I? No <laughs> such... Uh, no, if, if, there could be no husbands if there are no wives, could there? You see, they're relative, aren't they? Well, there's no foundation if you never build on it. You may have all the concrete in the world and that's just a great lump in the way. So a foundation day is to know that we have a foundation and then to ask ourselves, what are we doing about the foundation? What are we building? And instead of using the word building, I'm using a word which apparently, by the mercy of God and by his inspiration, has gripped the Apostle Paul, for in the three great prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, he has used one word, and the word is worthy. That is to say, you've got this glorious truth. Oh, it is glorious truth. And we've been honoured people to have been entrusted with it. But what about your relationship to it? What does it mean to you? So I thought it might be just a word in season if I spoke to myself and spoke to you and looked at the way in which he used this word worthy in these three epistles. So first of all, let's get the word in its three passages before us before we do anything else. Uh, uh, we'll look at Philippians and Colossians first and come back to Ephesians. Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1 verse 27 Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. The word conversation doesn't mean talking together, it means your whole manner of life. This word is deeper than media conversation in our sense of the word. Let your whole manner of life be worthy. This word as it becometh is the word worthy. Fancy your manner of life being worthy of the gospel. That gospel of the grace of God. That gospel which shows you the love of God manifested in the gift of his Son. That gospel which shows you the hatred of God to sin because he spared not his Son rather than let sin go on. Fancy having a life, a manner of life, which is worthy of such a gospel. And then look at the third reference, Colossians chapter 1, verse 10. He says in verse 9, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. What do you want all that preparation for? that you might walk worthy. No easy thing, is it, friends? Glibly talk about walking worthy. A knowledge of his will, filled with it, in all wisdom, and spiritual understanding, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing, not merely in the knowledge of God, I think we've just got to alter that a little bit, 
increasing by the knowledge of God. So there's hope for us, you see. Here's the word of God, we read it, and it enters into our heart and life and manifests itself in our walk. Well, now we'll come to the epistle to the Ephesians to get the one which I suppose is uppermost in our minds. Ephesians chapter 4. So that will be the three epistles with this word worthy embedded in them. Chapter 4, verse 6. Oh, sorry. Uh, uh, verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation or the calling wherewith ye are called. So if anyone thinks it's an easy thing to believe the truth of the mystery and talk about the dispensation of the grace of God, these things are checks to us. Because you say, if we think we're worthy, it depends upon the other person, doesn't it? I've seen a look on a person's face, you know, when I've been limping along on this hip of mine, and I said, you know, if I wasn't naturally sweet-tempered, I'd never get any further than that. Because it's no good talking about it, because, you see, it doesn't work. I was also thinking, just in passing, of that squiggly writing of mine. <laughs> and, of course, you, you, you'll be suspicious now when you get the next number of the breed. You think, I wonder what they made out of that. Well, once I had this happen to me, I wrote just a little bit, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will make mention of the name of the Lord our God. And the printer looked at it, then he turned it upside down and looked at it. And this is what he did, this was a good shot. Some trust in charity and some in works, but we will make mention of the name of the Lord our God. But it won't always work like that. So, do give a little remembrance to our friends, um, Brian and Stuart, when they're getting the next copy ready, and the wiggly writing may be there. But fortunately, there is the intervention of the typist that is in the background and forgotten many times. I think about Mrs. Farmer at Eastbourne for 30 years taking my typescript and turning it into readable uh, print for the printer. Well, one day we're going to stand together before the Lord. Because, you see, how this emphasises the interdependence of each other. Supposing I wrote, as he said, a hat box full. Supposing I wrote a cube sugar box full. And that was the end of it. You see? So it needs all this working together as fellow members in order that the word of God should run and be glorified. Well, now a word or two with regard to this word worthy. And I thought, well, how am I going to get it into the end of a meeting like this? So here we have in front of us a chart. Terrific weights there, of course, but it's quite safe. And the word worthy gives you the idea of a beam of a balance. And the Apostle has been so inspired to write this epistle that there are seven chapters of doctrine balanced by seven passages of practice. Right? Oh, chapters did I say? Yes, I'm sorry. There are seven, how shall I put it? Seven sections, good? Seven sections in the doctrine part, balanced by seven sections in the practical part. That's one idea we're not all asleep, aren't we? That's, <laughs> a, yes, yes. that's, a, that's an encouragement too, friends. Yes. 
Well now, supposing I just say, well, without labouring the point, and perhaps you know it all beforehand, but it's good to go over these things in our witness, should we just look at these seven doctrines and their equivalent, showing you that they are put like that, to balance each other. And then when it's all done, you say, well, I've taken those seven doctrines to myself. Oh, I better watch my step a little bit, by the grace of God. And that will be good, won't it, for all of us. So now we look at chapter 1, 3 to 14, balanced by chapter 6, verses 14 to 18. That's the beginning of the end of the story, you see. Now, in the, in the uh, chapter 3, we have these blessings, and we are told they're in heavenly places. Well now, if you go back to Old Testament history, the people of Israel found that they, they had to do some battle in the, in the place where their inheritance was. When they were on the way, God said, meddle not with them. You're only passing through. Meddle not with them. And then the version stops and it doesn't say meddle, but it's three times. Now he says, meddle with them, the Canaanites in the land. And here's one thought then that's coming out. We don't meddle with flesh and blood. We have no antipathy to the man in the street. Our enemies are spiritual. And they are in the very sphere where our blessings are to be enjoyed. In heavenly places. So let's get that, shall we, just to make sure. Verse 12 of chapter 6. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities. Against, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high, margin, heavenly places. Same word is used where our spiritual foes are as where our spiritual blessings are. So that you see, we should have to save all the strength that God gives us if we're going to meet these. And while we're fighting one another, they're getting on with their antagonism. So you see, it works more ways than one. Let's take another thought. Chapter 115 is Paul's prayer. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And the burden of his prayer is in... Um, the following verses, that ye may know. That ye may know. Even though he put it in writing, he still prayed over it. That ye may know. Now look at the answer to this. What is the answer to Paul's prayer for them? Well, if you'll look at chapter 6, you'll find it's their prayer for Paul. Oh yes, it was reciprocal. He prayed for them. They prayed for him, chapter 6. Verse 19 and 20. And for me, he says, praying in verse 18 and in verse 19, and for me. Oh, what a light that throws upon the character of this man, Paul. He didn't say, oh, I couldn't stoop to ask them to pray for me. Oh, he puts at the end, oh, and for me. So he says, and for me that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly 
Well, that, that, that's almost saying that sometimes he shrunk back. He did, friends. And he's confessing it. He was not made of wood or stone. He was made of flesh and blood. And if you read the things that this man endured, you wonder that he ever stood at all, except by the grace of God. So he doesn't, he doesn't hide the fact that he valued their prayers. That I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So here's a twofold prayer. Paul says, I'll pray for you that you may know. And you pray for me that I may speak. Well, go on like that, friends. It's still needed. All the folks in this chapel can pray for me. And if I can remember it, I'll pray for you. And there's the two ways that you may know that I may speak or ever occupies this pulpit or any other pulpit. It's, it's mutual, they want it. So there we get that again, you see. Well, let's take another of these balancings of the truth. Chapter 119 of Ephesians. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us ward to believe? I'm not reading the whole section because time is going, but there is a prayer that we may know what is this power which is wrought in us to be worked in us which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Let's look at the sequel in chapter 6. In chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power. See? He's told you in the first chapter, there's a power that's at your disposal. He prays now that you may um, in verse 10, that's I'm losing my place again. He says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armour of God. And then he goes on that you may uh, stand having done all. Now if you're reading the original, it's the word work again coming into it. Having worked out all. Gone right through with it. So once again you see. Now I'm not much of an electrician or an engineer and that sort of thing. They leave me cold, except the electric sparks, of course, that's another thing. Uh, I've got my other bits in other ways, and I'm so, so glad that some folks are keen to have nuts and bolts and screws. But I have this little bit of gumption about me, that if power is worked in, it's going to be disastrous if it's not worked out. There's a power at our disposal, friends, a power that the world cannot conceive of. The power that supported the Apostle Paul for that lifetime of suffering beyond dreams and yet held in, steadfast. But if that power is at our disposal and we are attached to it and we never use it, what's going to happen to you and to me spiritually, mentally, if not physically? So we've got a balance of truth again to see. So we put them in the scale and we seek to keep them even. Now in chapter 2 of Ephesians, he says uh, verse 8 to 10 for by grace are ye saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is a gift of God not of works lest any man should boast 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained, that we should walk in them. If you look at chapter 5, verse 1, and read right through chapter 5, on into chapter 6, verse 9, you say, read that lot. But friends, I'm saying it that way because there are some silly people who say that we are those folks who are so up in heavenly places and all spiritual blessings, we've got, we're, we're so heavenly minded, we're no earthly good. But the biggest section of this epistle, friends, the biggest section of this most spiritual epistle is telling husbands and wives, fathers and children, servants and masters, how they should comport themselves. And then they tell me that there's no practical politics in it. You know, once I had somebody tell me that, and I said, would you allow me to go home and read those verses to your wife? And he wasn't quite so pleased about that, so he didn't let me. Talk about not being practical, this is searching. For instance, in the normal way of a person's not a Christian, you could expect that he loved his wife, wouldn't you? Normally. Well, it says so here. Husbands, love your wives, but it doesn't stop there. Oh, read that bit. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ... Oh, I see even as Christ loved the church. And how did he love? And gave himself for it. And he so gave himself that there was no spot or wrinkle, wrinkle, a beauty treatment or any such thing. Tell me this book isn't practical. Tell me that if, you're, if your husband goes running off to the people in the chapel of the open book and believes the teaching of Ephesians, well, you'll have a better husband, friends. You will. Because here you've got a standard that no one of us could ever say we've fully reached. We might hope to, but there it is. And so we find this emphasis upon balance and worthiness. But there's a bit more. I won't go on too long. Suppose we look at chapter 2 now in Ephesians. Verse 11 and 19 onwards. Uh, chapter 2. Wherefore remember that ye be in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called a circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens. Notice the emphasis on the word aliens. And then, uh, going on a little bit further, we have the emphasis upon the new man. But leaving that, turn to the balance, will you? Because there we have the same thing coming forward once again, and this is chapter 4, verse 20 onwards. But ye have not so learned Christ. Well, if we say we know a lot about him, I believe this doctrine, oh yes, he said, oh, but you have not so learned Christ. This is entering into the practice again. Uh, that is, uh, where have I got up to, friends? 20, that's right. Thank you for helping me. But you have not so learned Christ, if so be that you have heard him and have been taught by him according as there is truth in Jesus. 
that he put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And so you'll read further down, being alienated. And so we've got the balance again. You were once aliens. And the, the emphasis here is that should be rectified also. Well then, coming a bit nearer still, chapter 2, 19 to 22. Now therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building, fitly framed together, groweth for an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of, a habitation of God through the Spirit. Well now we have here, in chapter 2, uh, what was that, 19 to 22? We have, could you see the word measure? I've, I've lost it. Oh no, it's in chapter 4, that's where the measure comes to balance this, excuse me. Chapter 4, 7 to 19. 7 to 19, chapter 4. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. And then it goes on to say about the stature of the fullness of the Christ. And every part, verse 16, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplies according to the effectual working in the measure of every part maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Look at the emphasis there, friends. The whole body fitly joined, every joint doing its part, and that all contributes to the building up of the body. Now, if there's any amount of work done in this little chapel that's not obvious, not immediately obvious, just now. Oh, this is the place where you're all on exhibition. But what about the many things that are done in the background? There's the cleaning of the place, obviously. And uh, I, I hope you enjoyed your tea, but somebody had to come here and stuff there to cut up to make those sandwiches. You see, every part has got its place. And one part of your body cannot say to the other, I have no need of you. The eye cannot say of the hand, I'm indifferent to you. We each one have got our part. When the uh, caretaker came to this place to look after it, I said to him, as I said to each one in turn, I said, you are not serving me. We are both serving the Lord. Now, would you like to do my job? He said, no. I said, I don't want to do yours either. So they were all satisfied, you see. But don't you see... That's the way in which the body should function. And so we go on with these balances. Now in chapter 3, we have, we're coming now to the centre, chapter 3, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles. He calls himself the prisoner of Jesus Christ for us Gentiles. And he, to, to jump a passage, he says, Verse 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body 
and partakers of the promise in Christ by the gospel. Well, the translators have eased that and dodged it a bit. It's so difficult to translate. Because the same little word is repeated three times. And it's been put like this. That the Gentiles should be joint heirs. Well, you can understand that, because once they weren't joint heirs with Israel, Israel were top and they were bottom. Now there's a difference. They're joint heirs. And what's a joint body, friend? Well, it's like the man at the zoo who stood looking at a rhinoceros for a bit. He says, there ain't no such thing. This is something that's outside of the realm of nature, a joint body. But that's the body of Christ. Every member in it, together with the every other member, not one above the other. And then back again to that which is within our powers, not merely so, but joint partakers. Joint partakers, it comes three times. And you've got to do the best you can without English to make it intelligible. But you do notice this, do you? The balancing section, chapter 4, starts like this. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. Do you notice anything, friends? Chapter 3 said he was the prisoner of Jesus Christ. Chapter 4 says he's the prisoner of the Lord. Well, what's the difference? Oh, and he says, I've passed from the doctrine to the practice. You call me Master and Lord. For so I am. You do what I tell you. So you see, you can't find this book out. It's there all the time. Not obvious, but waiting for a perfect, isn't it? And so I felt I would like to just bring this meeting to a close on this stress on the word worthy. Put the doctrine into the balance. And then have a look and see how far... It's balanced like that, you see. That's all we've got to do in this life, friends, with regard to our witness, our walk, our manner of life, is just to bring that balance like that. That's all. But it takes all the grace of God and all that we possess in Christ to even approach it, doesn't it? But I felt it it might be a good idea that instead of stressing, as we might in this meeting, all the advantages and all the blessings we have just to stop and ask ourselves, uh, what are you doing with it? How are you reacting to it? For you see, the Apostle says in Ephesians, walk worthy. He says in Philippians, live worthy. He says in Colossians, be worthy. It looks as though he got it in his mind, doesn't it? And as he was a God-given messenger to us, it wouldn't be a bad plan, it was in our mind too, would it? And so I ask you to accept that as my little effort in this great meeting. But this is all based on something, because I've only touched the six, and the six, you see, like that. But now it's based upon something. Ephesians 3, 14 to 21, with which we bring this part to a close. Ephesians 3, 14. For this cause, I bow my knees unto the Father, is a sacred moment, is a man of prayer, and what a man of prayer. I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family, or perhaps every family, because it's a strange thing that we can speak of every family in connection with God. There's the family in heaven, there's a family in the New Jerusalem, the family on earth, or you could look at it as a whole family having different relationships as there are in families this time. We'll leave it as it stands for the moment. Of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches 
of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. What's all this for? What's all this preparation for? That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. At first you say, seems a sort of an anticlimax, but you wait. You know, even if I, this person, was going to visit one of you friends, Oh, there'd be a bit of scrubbing and a new curtain put up here and uh, something else in the bedroom, you know. Because of why? Oh, that you want to make it decent. You want all this preparation, friends, that Christ may dwell in your heart. It's easy to talk about it. But you know what's going to happen when he comes in? What he says goes. Don't you ask Christ to come into your heart. And expect him to sit in a chair and you carry on. He says, oh no, when I come in, what I say goes. So it's a very important thing to wait over, isn't it? That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. That ye being rooted and grounded. Now the Apostle brought together two statements. He speaks about the temple of living stones. Living stones. Rooted and grounded. Because the figure is not good enough. It's living, it's rooted, it's grounded. But ye being rooted and grounded in the doctrine, become a subscriber to the Berean Expositor, doesn't say that, it says rooted and grounded in love. And when we know what scripture means by love, we've got all the doctrine there is. But ultimately the scripture reveals God is love. But it's not a sentimental character. It's a burning fire of a love. It cannot tolerate sin. It's holy. But oh, what a revelation it is that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. And to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. Which is that that's a contradiction. Yes, it's intended to be. Because not in this life will you ever grasp it. You begin to know it. But he says it eclipses knowledge. So don't be afraid, friends, if you don't feel you're right up to the mark yet. Be afraid when you think you've reached it. That's the trouble. To know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. Then it goes on, that ye might be filled. Now here's a problem. How can we be filled with all the fullness of God? Look, all the fullness of God, we're going to be filled with it. You know the picture of the little child trying to put the Atlantic in its little pile down by the seaside. Well, it doesn't say filled with. It's filled up to whatever your capacity may be. If you're a little cup, if you're a little pot, if you're a little basin, whatnot, filled at least, pray that you may be filled up to the brim. Don't say, oh, I'm so small that it doesn't matter two hoots. It does. You're a little child of God, right? Be filled up that little measure, but filled up to it. And so growth in grace goes on. So I thought it might be perhaps you tolerate me this evening just to quicken an interest in the thought that all this wonderful truth for which we stand is asking for a wonderful response that we may be worthy, if it's possible, or walk worthy as far as we have grace and strength given to us. And then to see that the very epistle itself is written round that central thought. So, 
chapter 4, and I finish. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the calling wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness. There's another reference to this walk, uh, where he says, in, in another chapter, he speaks about walking as though you're on a giddy height. Here he says, walk with all loneliness. No contradiction. I do remember once somebody telling me that a person went for a holiday in Switzerland for the first time and he was walking and the, the guide called out to him, on your knees! It's perilous to stand there. On your knees! Friends, that's true of this. On your knees is the way you learn. So he says here, with all loneliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavouring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And the next unity is found in uh, the uh, same chapter when it speaks about the unity of the faith, verse 13, till we all come in the unity of the faith. Those two go together. The unity of the Spirit manifested by our unity one with another and with the Lord in the centre, and then the unity of the faith. And who's in the centre of this sevenfold unity of the faith? The unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, the perfect man, the measure of the stature of the fullness of the Christ. It's the Son of God, right in the centre. And here's a strange fact. You'd think the word Son of God was all over Paul's epistles, wouldn't you? Well, you read through Philippians and Colossians and read Ephesians and you'll find this is a solitary passage. Sometimes God emphasises a thing by saying it once and leaves it in all its pristine glory. The centre of all our unity, the centre of all our witness is the Son of God. So we have the, we speak of a sevenfold or a seven-branch candlestick, of course that isn't true. There's the one shaft in the middle and six on either side. There's the one Lord that makes the unity of the faith possible. And there's the Son of God that makes the unity of the faith real. Well now you say, poor old chap. He did the best he could. He lost his place. He wasn't quite sure whether he got to the end or not. But I am thankful, friends, to be here again tonight. It's a refresher to be. You put up with it very lovingly, very nicely. But when I look back over, what, 50, creeping up to 60 years of standing, sometimes almost alone by the grace of God, it is a joy to know that, that folks are not here following a man. They're here because they've seen the light of the truth, the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And having seen that, and never can be trapped again in the things that satisfy so many of poor God's people. Go on praying for us, friends. Pray especially for those who are succeeding, because my course may be very soon run, I don't know. I'm so thankful that I've been restored so far as to be able to stand up here at all. I didn't think I was going to. Two years ago, my friends thought they'd seen me in the hospital for the last time. Here I am, good old nuisance. <laughs> but as the days draw, draw to an end, they'll get more difficult, friends. 
Let's face it, it's going to be an easy time for a person to believe the truth of the epistle to the Ephesians when the anti-Christian powers begin to gather. So we'll still need all the prayer that you can remember them. Keep them in mind, remember them by name, that they may stand fast and hold fast until that day comes. And they too will be able to say, I finished my course, I've kept the faith. Henceforth is laid up for thee a crown. Well, we leave the crown to the discretion of the Lord, but all to be able to say, in any sense, I have kept the faith. What a trust. What a glory to be in a world like this and yet be entrusted with truth like that.